worship this morning. Would you open your Bibles up to John chapter 1, please? And this is going to be our last message in the first chapter, starting at verse 35 and going to 51. I'll give you time to find the Pew Bible ahead of you, or if you have a Bible that you brought with you, or even to open up um, an app on your phone or other device to follow along with the Word of God. This is the most important thing we're going to do today, is hear right from Him. This is the Word of God. We're thankful this morning to have that. such great access to it, in fact. Are you ready? John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Praise God for his word this morning. Would you pray with me one last time? Lord, as we consider this text and the simple call Come and see. We thank you that you are the God who sees us. We thank you that you are the God who has sent your only son to be a greater teacher. To show a greater path. To give us a greater name. And that we might see your greater glory. I pray that you would help us in this endeavor this morning. Grant your spirit to strip away any of the unnecessary things that we hear or things that I say. 
Give us just the, the good fruit of your word this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title this morning is pretty simple. It's come and see. It's a phrase you see more than anything else in this passage. Repeated, that is. And we're going to divide this passage up into four sections, if you want to follow along with that. We're going to see these four calls revolving around four different ideas. The first call will be a call to a greater teacher. The second will be a call to a greater name. The third, a greater path. And lastly, the call to a greater glory. And just on that last point, the title is Come and See, but what is it that we're going to come and see? It is ultimately the glory of God in Christ. Anybody familiar with the old poem from 1875 called Invictus? Maybe you saw the movie in the late 2000s, I think it was, with, uh, who was in that movie? It was about rugby. I always want to say it was soccer, but it was about rugby. But it took the title from this old poem in 1875. And I was thinking about reading the whole thing, but it's too depressing. I'm not going to read it all to you. You can look it up on your own. There's one particular line. Also, I, I felt like I had shared this poem before, so I wasn't totally sure. And maybe, you know, in a few months I'll pretend like I didn't and do it again. <laughs> but in this poem called Invictus, a word that means unconquered, the poet has this particular line where they thank whatever gods may be for their unconquerable soul. In the end, they declare, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It is a fist-shaking poem at any god that may, in fact, exist, to use the words of the poet himself. It's a declaration of submitting to no one but himself. The poet being one who says, I will make the call on my life. I will determine what I must do. I will determine who I'm going to be. I'll determine where I go. All of those things will be determined by me and by me alone. 1875, that was a while ago, wasn't it? And yet, this is one of those poems that you, if you looked at it in its entirety, you might think that it was written today. If our title is Come and See, and the call that we see in God's word this morning is to come and see to sinful humanity, whatever time period we may live in, and we might say particularly where we live in today, that this notion is something that to our culture reeks of submission. It reeks of dependency. It reeks of impersonality, of, of, a, of a distance, of that there is someone who is pulling the puppet strings of my life one way or another, that is dictating to me what I ought to do, who I ought to be, and where I ought to go. Even in the church, this idea is sometimes opposed, sometimes opposed very angrily, the idea of God's sovereignty and of his call, and the idea that this Bible that we hold so dear as God's very word calls us to do something. It calls us, in fact, to submit. It calls us, in fact, to follow. We don't like that. You can just see 2020 and 2021, just to use a more recent example. We've had calls to put on masks, and people don't like that call. We've had calls to take a vaccine, and people really don't like that call. 
We've had calls to riot and to storm government buildings. Some people really liked that call. We've had calls to raise our fists and agree, even though we may not know entirely what's going on. We've had calls to conform. We've had all sorts of calls. The fact is, we are powerless in controlling our fate. Not a very American thing to say today, is it? We don't have control over our fate. This, this poem Invictus wants to tell us, like, yes, I am an unconquerable soul, and I will, you know, like Braveheart, I would rather die for my freedom than to live under the rule of another. Is there anything more detestable to the modern mind or to the American mind? The idea of answering a call and following and submitting and releasing our own rights. Boy, we, we're bothered by that right now, aren't we? My rights. My rights to do this. My rights to do that. Are rights good? Yeah, sure. Are they guaranteed? Who guarantees them? Do you remember in John 1, verses 9 through 13? If you don't remember, you can look back a little bit in your Bibles if you're still in John 1. But in verse 9, John the apostle, the evangelist, the writer, says the true light, that is Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God's people are those who ultimately listen to a call, follow it, and are changed by the one who made the call in the first place. This is what we see today as Jesus calls his first disciples. Today we're going to look at those who did, in fact, receive him. First, The first five people that received him and followed him as his disciples. And we need to ask for our sake and for the sake of those who might hear our Christian testimony, what does that look like? More importantly, how does that happen? More, more, more importantly, what is my role in this call? Last week we talked about how John the Baptist's message, remember there's two Johns here, John the Baptist's message was, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That he is the one who comes and baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so we grabbed onto that. I hope you grabbed onto that last week. That what Jesus calls us to do and to be and to go and all those things, he gives us the power to do and be and go and all those things. And that power is not some disconnected battery that he delivers to your door via Amazon Prime. The power that he gives you is his very presence, his very spirit living inside of you, Christian, to obey that call and to live it out. So the call of scripture today is very clear even to use that word. We need to answer the call to come and see his glory. And we also need to call others to come and see his glory as well. We're getting this idea of glory. Have you questioned that yet? Because in this passage that we've read, we haven't really talked about glory, have we? That word glory doesn't show up. So go back with me to verse 14, right where we left off. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his what? His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
That is the content of his glory. John, the apostle, the writer here says, this is what we have seen. His intention that he writes at the end of his book is that you might hear this and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that in believing you would have eternal life. But what is it that attracts us to Jesus? Is it that he can satisfy a need that I have? When you came to Christ, believer, what was it that attracted you? You may not agree in testimony. You might have a different testimony, a different story about when you saw Jesus for who he was, there was something about him that that pulled you in and you you said, "I, I couldn't not believe in him because of this thing, because he met me at the place of my need. And he does that. But do you know what's behind all of that? It's his glory. The glory of Christ is what draws people, is what ultimately opens their eyes and has the power to enable them to answer the call. Come and see. So you've got the simple outline. Come and see a greater teacher. This is verses 35 through 39. We get another notice of my second favorite Bible character, John the Baptist, in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Do you realize this is an imperative statement? We read this last week, right? This was John's message in the previous passage. This is an imperative. You behold the Lamb of God. And what did his disciples do? Did they say, no, we won't? No, of course not. Did they stand there and say, okay, I'm watching him. And there he goes, off into the sunset. The Lamb of God. I don't even know what that means. Maybe John wanted me to, oh, I should have probably talked to him, right? What do they do? John says, behold the Lamb of God, and the two disciples, what? Heard him say this. The last message they got from John the Baptist, the last rabbi-teacher moment for these disciples. Rabbi just means teacher, as you saw in the text later on. But the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Wow, wouldn't you just love it if we could get, by whatever means necessary, if we could promise everybody in the neighborhood $100 if they would just come to church and sit in the pink chairs and hear somebody, doesn't even matter who it is, say, behold the Lamb of God, and then have them follow Jesus. That would be really easy, wouldn't it? we got to remember, these were disciples of John. These were ones who were living with John out in the wilderness, spending their time with him. The one who was the voice in the wilderness, crying out, prepare the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And so every moment they spent with John the Baptist was God's using that time to prepare them to prepare the way of the Lord. And when the Lord showed up, and when John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb, they followed. We get no indication from the author that they stopped and said, are you sure? Because first of all, he looks like a man and not a lamb. No, of course not. When they hear lamb, what are they thinking? Rhymes with sacrifice. That's what they were thinking. That's what you do with lambs in the Old Testament. He's the lamb of God. He's the sacrifice that God has provided for us. What? We don't do human sacrifice. This is outrageous. I know my sins need to be dealt with, and that's why I came to John in the first place, because he was calling me to repent. And so I came to repent, and I came to be baptized. 
to, to wait for the next one who was to come. And you're telling me he's the Lamb of God? But in their following this Lamb of God, they are declaring to us in that one phrase, and they followed him, that he is a greater teacher than John the Baptist. You know, Jesus has some pretty high praise for John the Baptist later on, right? Do you remember that part in the Gospels? When Jesus says that among among all people, there was no one like John the Baptist. His role was so special. He was the one who broke the 400 years of silence so that we could be prepared for the Messiah, for the Savior to come. And yet he says, even the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. And John knew that about himself, just a voice. So without belaboring last week's sermon any more than I already have, we recognize that these two disciples who had a great teacher, who had, in their minds, no one else to go to, They knew John the Baptist was telling them the truth. There was nobody else doing John the Baptist's ministry at that time. John the Baptist was it. So when he says, behold the Lamb of God, and the subtext is, follow him, they know there's nothing else they can do but to listen to those very instructions. And this is right in line with what John's going to say in chapter 3. He must increase, and I must decrease. It's true of you, O Christian. You must decrease, and he must increase. It does not mean that you need to just totally embrace an unrighteous sense of humility so that you might appear to be one who exalts Christ farther above anyone else is able to. But in your mind, you say something like what Paul says in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Behold the Lamb of God. We would love this as an evangelistic strategy, and it is the evangelistic strategy. When we consider the call that we have to make to the lost world around us, this is what it boils down to. Come and see. Behold the Lamb of God. And this is what God's word is telling us this morning. This works. Do you know churches, and maybe even in our own minds and hearts, because let's not just... Let's not be in this bubble where, like, we don't do what the rest of the American church does, right? But do you know that we, as American Christians particularly, like to put a lot of stock in fancy outreach events? And do you know that those are okay things to do? That I see nothing wrong with getting a big bouncy house and saying, hey, neighborhood kids, we love you. Come and jump on this inflated balloon, and we'll give you a hot dog. There's nothing wrong with that unless we don't tell them to behold the lamb. John discipled and prepared these men for these. And who are these men? Andrew is one of them. Disciple number two is unknown, but we know from John's pattern in the rest of his gospel that when he doesn't name somebody, he is often referring to himself. So perhaps this is John and Andrew who followed Jesus at this time, but they had no question in their minds. They needed to follow Jesus. I wonder, when you heard the call, Christian, to follow Christ? Is this, is this a picture of what your life looked like? Did you, in one sense, drop your old teacher and follow a greater one? Whoever that teacher would have been. Probably wasn't John the Baptist. I don't think he was around. But whatever was the major source of influence in your life, did you drop that so that you could follow Christ? Because that's how we answer the call. Well, they ask him a good question or they ask him a bad question. What do you think? Look at this. In verse 38, Jesus turned to them after they followed him. He said, what are you seeking? It's a good question. 
Jesus is going to ask this of many people later on. He's going to run into people who are seeking him because he miraculously made bread and fish multiply and fed them and their bellies were full and they wanted to stick around a guy like that. And so Jesus turns around and says, are you really seeking me or are you seeking stuff? So what do the disciples ask? Rabbi, where are you staying? What do you think? Is this a good question or a bad question? Doesn't sound too spiritual, does it? Are you truly the Messiah, the promised one, the Lamb of God who is sent to free us from the Romans, who is sent to bring us peace, who is sent to fix our problem of unrighteousness? All sorts of questions that could have been asked here, but they simply ask, where are you staying? And this past week, I read people who said, good question, bad question. I'm going to land on, ultimately, I think this is a good question. You're allowed to disagree with me on this. Why would you ask somebody where they're staying? make conversation uh, so where do you live uh, what's your hometown where did you grow up where do you work what do you like to do on Friday nights is this kind of the conversation going on of course not they're not just simply saying like oh I don't know who's going to talk to us um, what should we ask him uh, where are you staying <laughs> it wasn't like that at all they're saying where are you staying because why Exactly. We want to go where you're going, and we want to stay where you're staying. This is what a disciple does. They go where Jesus is going, and they stay where he's staying. The response to the call, behold the Lamb of God. The response to Jesus, then, in asking, what are you seeking? Is where are you staying? And then we get our main call in verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. Now, okay, what is he answering? If you want to see where I'm staying, I'm not going to give you an address. I'm going to tell you, keep following me. Eventually, I'll stop, and that's where I'm staying, right? This is a very simple answer. But, and you might think, if you just read part of this, that you're like, okay, don't name your sermon. Come and see. Like, this is silly. This is just him saying, here's my geographical location of where I'm staying the night. We know that Jesus, the Son of Man, as he called himself, didn't even have a place to lay his head. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So he was moving from place to place. It wasn't normal for him to stay very long in one place. It may just seem like a simple, practical answer, but there's more to it than that because this idea of coming and seeing keeps popping up in this passage, doesn't it? So it's a good question, I say. He's the greater teacher. He's the one that they want to stick around with. John was only temporary. He was the transition to the one who was greater. John represents, again, the Old Testament, all those books that came beforehand that were pointing to the Messiah. John stands as the transition, as the billboard that says, Behold the Lamb. Now, don't wait for another prophet like Isaiah or Malachi or Hosea or any of those guys. Don't wait for another earthly king like David, exactly like David, but look to the one who is the Lamb of God. He is the greater teacher in this case. For them, the master of their fate is not themselves. There seems to be no moment where they stop and ask, do we really want to follow this guy? What we call that in theology is irresistible grace. That when Christ calls us effectively when he sets out to save a soul there is nothing sorry i'm gonna back up on that ain't nothing gonna stop him if he decides to do it who can undo what god does so when christ says come and see they don't go uh i don't think so jesus set out to have them come with him next come and see a greater teacher now in verses 40 to 42 come and see a greater name 
Well, one of these disciples is Andrew. And what is the first thing he does? Look at this in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So John, the author here, is already assuming we know who Simon Peter is. Right? He's a pretty important guy. We might have read some of the other Gospels. We might have heard about him. We might have even heard him preach. You know, the audience that he read to might have said, like, oh, I was there on Pentecost when Peter gave that great sermon and 3,000 people. That Simon Peter. Now I know who you're talking about. Verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, etc., etc. We'll get there in a second. Notice this. He first found him. He's answering the call to come and see to follow Christ himself. And what is the natural overflow of that? I gotta tell my brother this. Right? Might be a difficult thing for us culturally to consider, right? Because today, we do want to live as though we are the master of our own fate. And if I go to another person that even that I love and that knows me, the assumed reaction might be for me to say, hey, we have found the Messiah. We've found the one who is in charge of everything. He's the one God has set up to save us and to rule for eternity. We might say in our hearts, but I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul, my unconquerable soul. And I don't think that Peter just glazed over that notion in his own heart. Yeah, we see here he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and gave him a new name. We know what happens with Peter later on. We also know what happens with Peter later on. We know he becomes a disciple, but we also know Peter for the disciple with his foot in his mouth most of the time, right? Constantly saying things that we would go, oh, Peter, don't you know you're talking to Jesus? I would never say such a thing. Peter had a struggle. Every disciple has a struggle. So he says to them, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now we know in another gospel that in another telling of the life of Christ, that when Peter gets this new name, when he goes from Simon to Peter, there's more context, right? I'm changing your name to something that means rock because on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And for further discussion on that, you can... Talk to me later, you can talk to another person, you can discuss what that means, but ultimately I'm going to tell you today that when Jesus said on this rock, he wasn't talking about Peter as though he's going to be this great popish leader of the church, but rather that Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ is the rock on which Christ would build his church. But here we don't get that, do we? So what is John getting at? Is he getting at a little footnote that says, see Matthew for further details on this name change? I mean, in part, we do that, right? But in another part, he leaves it out on purpose. He says, Peter, sorry, Simon, met Jesus, and basically this is his story. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John. You're going to be called Cephas. I'm changing your name. In Peter's mind, in the minds of people listening, who, does, who is this guy? I mean, what if I came up to you in your house and knocked on your door and said, hey, Chad, I'm going to call you Steve. There's Steve. <laughs> Names right there. <laughs> That's where that came from. It'd be weird, wouldn't it? Somebody come in and change your name? You have to have some kind of special authority. For Peter, he was sitting there thinking, my father gave me this name. This is an important thing. You can't just change my name unless you are somebody else, unless you have the power to give a greater name than even that which was given by my beloved earthly father. Jesus is greater than any earthly name giver because he is a name re-giver. 
He can give new names. And the identity of Peter is now wrapped up in his call from Christ, the one who's given him this name, and the commission that he will give him. Because he will be a rock. Sometimes he will be rock-headed. But a lot of the time, he's going to be a sturdy, faithful, trustworthy disciple of Christ. He says this to the person who's going to betray him. Well, these calls all sound really great, don't they, when we read them on paper. But when we look at our own lives and we consider what Christ might be calling us to, we might say that we have other calls that we'd prefer. We have other situations in our lives that we would say, you know, I'd like you to call me to another job that makes me some more money. I'd like you to call me to a lifestyle of perfect health and prosperity and everything. I'd like you to call me to a better home situation, to a better uh, hairdo, to a better whatever. You know, those things that we put in the forefront of our minds as the thing that we say, if this could just be fixed, everything would be better. Jesus is calling us to come and look at him, come and see, to behold his glory. But we're not convinced by that on our own, so we don't always comply. And our problem with ourselves is the same that we have with calling others. If we may have gotten over to that point and said, no, I am a Christian, I am going to comply to this call. Our next struggle is, as I think about who I'm going to call, who I'm going to share this testimony of the goodness of what Christ has done with me, for me, when I think about that person, I might first most likely think, what if they reject? What if they deny? What if they disagree? Can I really conform to a life following a rabbi? Can I embrace the identity change and the identity transparency that we see with Nathaniel later on? Biases and all, all of his prejudices, all of his preconceived notions. Don't we thrive off of making our own fate? Don't we want somebody else to come in and tell us, you can do it? One of our favorite Pixar movies is Brave. It's about this Scottish girl who turns her mom into a bear. It's really funny. But in the end of the movie, this idea of fate is a big theme in it. It's very interesting. In the end of the movie, the main character says, there are those who say that fate is something beyond our command, but I know better. That destiny is not our own, but I know better. Our fate lives within us. You only have to be brave enough to see it. And I think that last sentence is just so they could get the title of the movie in there. But I think that this notion of saying, yeah, destiny exists, maybe it does, but it exists within me, and I can conform it and shape it, and my actions will impact what that destiny becomes so that ultimately when I reach that destiny in full, I find something that I have made in my own image. But I don't know a single person who has lived that kind of mindset who at the end of their days could say, yeah, I have shaped my destiny exactly how I would want it. But that's what we learn growing up. That's what we get from our Disney movies. That's what we get from school, from our heroes, from our greater teachers, from our own name. Our own identity of ourselves is wrapped up in the fact that we think that we are the master of our fate. Come and see a greater teacher. Come and see a greater identity. Come and see a greater path, 43 through 46. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, so he knew those guys. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. And that is the extent of Philip's testimony to Nathaniel. Does that mean that he thought, hey, I'm, 
I'm off the hook now. I don't need to worry about testifying to this guy anymore. I said, come and see. It's up to him whether he does it. Not exactly. But it is the, the, the root of what our testimony is. In a nutshell, I've found Jesus. I know who he is. I know him personally. And you ought to come and see too, regardless of what you think about him. The way we overcome this conflict of our own mentality of being the master of our fate, being in charge of our destiny is by basically seeing Christ, by encountering him for who he is. And noticing that when that happens, there's nothing within me that is already inclined and prepared on my own to receive him as Lord, but in fact, he is the one who is effectively calling all of his sheep, giving us confidence that his obedience to the Father on our behalf at the cross was enough to win us to be his. Because he does not simply come, this is not the end of the story in the end of John chapter 1. We have to get to the cross still. He's making disciples. He's having them follow him along until he ultimately comes to the pinnacle of his mission to die in the place of sinners. And he's going to be preparing them for that moment. And guess what? As much as, as ready as Andrew and apparently John or the other disciple here, as ready as they were to leave John the Baptist and follow Jesus, they weren't ready to stay with Jesus at the moment of the cross. They weren't ready to make that a part of their identity. Peter himself would be the one who denies Jesus three times, denies that he even knows him, even curses that third time. But Christ dies in his place anyhow. And because he has died, because he has paid the penalty for our sins, he creates a universal call to anyone and everyone in the hearing of the gospel that anyone can come and see the glory of what Christ has done on their behalf. But not all will listen. Some, the Bible says, God will leave to their own devices to, to say, hey, your will be done. Okay, fine, that's it. But to others, and we don't know why, and we don't know how, God doesn't reveal to us how he chooses one person and doesn't choose another one. But to others, he calls effectively. He gives an unconditional decision, and he calls that person and that decision with an irresistible kind of grace. Why Christ himself calls Philip and says, follow me, and he simply does. Philip's obedience and his reaction is just like that of, of Andrew, to go and find someone else. Our job is done in one sense when we testify to what Christ has done for us to another person but there's still patience that needs to happen afterwards. There's, there's a time frame in here, right? We have verse 29, the next day. Verse 35, the next day. Verse 43, the next day. This was a very eventful four days. It was the beginnings of the church. But things seem to slow down for us, don't they? It doesn't seem like we can simply in one encounter say, let me tell you about Jesus so that you'll believe and have eternal life. I believe God very clearly is calling us to patience and long-suffering with those who don't know him because he was patient and long-suffering with us. We were also those who had to be called and perhaps called over and over and over again. So whether we are parents, spouses, whether we have friends, we have co-workers, children, whoever it may be, we need to testify. We need to wait. We need to trust the one who is effectively calling. 
Because in our testimony, we don't find anything special about the words of Philip or of Andrew in this passage. What we see is that what something's going on behind that. We'll see that at the end here. But God is forming in us his character. Galatians 4.19, Paul says, My little children to the church, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. For Paul, waiting for the church to really live up to what they've been called to was like being a parent. It was like giving birth, actually, he says. In another place, in Romans 9, talking about the whole nation of Israel, wishing that this nation that was set, meant to be God's people, who has largely rejected God, he says, I could wish that myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Paul shows us, just as John is showing us, that the heart of God is created in the people of God. The power of God by his spirit inhabits those people and makes the call that we give with our mouths more effective because he is present and working through it. We never, we never, we never testify to anyone on our own. I know I've said many, many times that we can do this together. And we ought to. We ought to set time aside. We ought to make plans. We ought to grab another brother or sister in Christ and say, I really want to share the gospel with this person, but I am just scared to death to open my mouth. But I know if you were there with me, I could do it. We ought to do those kinds of things. But even in those moments where God says, I'm not going to give you a brother or sister in this moment, and I still need you to be ready because I am still present with you. Well, Nathaniel gives a little bit of resistance, doesn't he? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's met with a simple call, and he responds to that call. He goes and sees Jesus, doesn't he? Why? Do we think Philip and Nathaniel know each other? Of course they do. Just like Andrew went and found his brother, Philip and Nathaniel may not be brothers, but they certainly had some other friendship other than that brotherhood that led, just like, just like Andrew, Philip to say, i got to go tell Nathaniel. And when he did, Nathaniel said, all right. At the very least, we know he at least said, all right, let's go. Let's see. Well, he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel's kind of taken back by this. How do you know me? How do you know me? You sound like you know me. You sound like you know that I'm a person of integrity, that I say what I think. Sure enough, we know that about Nathaniel, right? He doesn't bounce around the issue. He says, I don't think anything good can come out of Nazareth, that old dusty town. And Jesus seems to respond to his response. But he gives a greater thing. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. There's great imagery in this that you should look up on your own for the sake of time. I'm going to skip over it right now. But Jesus saw the one who was called to come and see. He saw him first. He was watching present, active, actively calling, actively working on his heart, effectively working and calling him, such that when Nathaniel sees this wonderful, amazing thing, he responds, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus' response is, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? That simple thing? I don't think he's being mean to him here. I don't think he's saying, like, that's pathetic. I think he's just saying, do you realize that if you come and see, and if you stay with me, you will see greater things than these. And then he says something in reference to the verse that we had read at the beginning of the service. I say to you, you will see heaven open and the Son of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
This passage that we started with this morning began with behold the Lamb of God, the one who was to be a sacrifice on behalf of his people. And it ends with Jesus after all these wonderful titles, Son of God, King of Israel, Messiah, Rabbi. He lands with calling himself the Son of Man. Ultimately calling into mind his mission, the path that he would walk. His identity is wrapped up in his divinity and his humanity at the same time. It is not a half and half. It is a both and situation. He is the greater teacher. He has the greater identity and bestows a greater identity on us. He calls us to follow down a greater path than what we would have done otherwise on our own that we would have blazed for our own, that we would have made our own fate. He calls us to something better. And lastly, he calls us to a greater glory. Because what is this that he says? You will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. When the heavens open, the glory of God pours out. And these angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, really strange sounding thing. But if we go back to Genesis 28, we see Jacob dreaming this very thing. And Jesus basically saying, the promise that was made to Jacob is fulfilled and perfected in me, in Christ, only in him. The greater glory than what anyone else could have expected from God's promise. Jesus sees all that he will make us, and he sees all that we really are. And he calls us to come and see him, to behold his glory. And this is what we're to call other people to as well. And we can, because he has called us, because he has shown us the way, because he has remained with us, we can call others to come and see that Christ is the greater teacher, that he is the greater path, that he is the greater identity, that he is the greater glory. What do we do? Well, this passage in verse 51, we refer to this as the ladder to heaven, the stairway to heaven, as an old rock song called it. I want you to think on verse 1 chapter 1, verse 51 this week, as you read the Bible, as you pray, as you fellowship, as you sing, as you testify, as you battle sin, as you worship God, whatever it is you're doing this week, think about this very fact that in those things you are encountering the glory of God in Christ. Do it daily. Behold the Lamb. Come and see who he is. And you will see the Son of Man. You will see the glory of heaven upon him. This passage ends with a realized eschatology, which is a big phrase that basically means this. Christ is going to be the bridge between heaven and earth, and he is, and he was when he said this. It was a realized eschatology. Eschatology talks about end time things. Realized means it's happening now. Christ is here now, connecting heaven and earth, connecting the temporary to the eternal and calling us to embrace the bigger picture, the eternal message, the hope that we have in him that we're about to sing about. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will be brought together as his people, declaring his glory and calling each other for eternity to come and see who he is. Would you pray with me, please? We thank you, Lord, that this realization at the end of this passage that you are the present bridge between heaven and earth is the reality that we live in right now. And Lord, whatever place we find ourselves in this passage, whether we need to come to you as our greater teacher, whether we need to come to you for a greater identity than what we have right now in our lostness, our separation from God, 
whether we need to strike a new path, whether we need to follow you and stop following our own designs, our own patterns. If we simply need to behold your glory this morning, would you meet us at the place of our need? Would you speak to us in our hearts that we might hear, that we might effectively listen and obey for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.